Well, I want to start with a little history lesson. Taking us back into the mid-1930s, there was a man named Casper. And his wife's name was Carnilla. And they lived together quietly as a family. And he was the Dutch. He was a Dutch watchmaker. And he ran the family business. And he was known, and his family was known for being very open, very loving towards the people. He and his family were Christians. And they made a habit out of ministering to those in need, the downtrodden. Regardless of need, regardless of nationality, they were demonstrating the love of Christ to whoever they could. And then toward the end of the 1930s, um, something happens. It's called World War II. And during World War II, their house becomes way more than just a place of hospitality where those in need could stop by. It became a hiding place for Jews and Dutch people, especially those involved with the Dutch underground. Casper's last name, as you probably already figured out, was Ten Boom. You're probably more familiar with his daughter, Carrie Ten Boom. But Casper and his two daughters, actually, Betsy and Carrie, were compelled by their faith, their Christian faith, to protect Jews and any others that were being sought by the Nazis Nazis during this horrible time. At any given time, there were as many as six or seven people living illegally in their safe house. Then on February 28, 1944, the Gestapo showed up and raided their home. And while they were there that day, they arrested over 30 people that, had, that came, not knowing the Gestapo were waiting. And they also arrested Casper, uh, Carrie, Betsy, and a fourth member of their family. And... Six people did not get found because they were hiding in a hidden room that they had in Carrie's bedroom. You had to slide under that bottom shelf of that closet and behind that wall there was a small room. And the six people that were in there remained there for almost 48 hours before uh, people from the Dutch underground could come and get them out of there after the Gestapo had left. Casper and the other relatives were taken to prisons the first prison that, well, the only prison that Casper went to was the Havenigan Jail. He didn't last but more than 10 days there before he died. And someone asked him if he knew that he could die for helping the Jews. And his response was simple and clear. He said, it would be an honor to give my life for God's ancient people. Corey and Betsy spent... Ten months in three different prisons. Everywhere they went, they were sharing the love of Christ in the most horrific of conditions. If you've seen pictures and read the story, you know how ugly and horrible it was. Betsy died after ten months, as did a brother and a nephew. And Corey alone was the survivor. They are an amazing picture of what a life lived when we understand God's upper story, his plan. And you don't get your eyes on the lower story, what's taking place around us, circumstances. They truly were ministering Christ's love during one of the most horrible times in history. Now in chapter 20 of the story, and for those of you that are visitors, we've been going through the story, the Bible, and we're in chapter 20. In chapter 20 of the story, we see a Holocaust about to take place 2,500 years before Hitler. 
God's chosen people were facing extermination. It was anti-Semitism at its very worst. But once again, as we look at the story, we're going to see God's faithfulness and the way he amazingly provides for his people. The title of my message is simply, For Such a Time as This. And if you're familiar with Scripture, right away you know where we're at in the Bible. We're in the book of Esther. And a subtitle of it would be, God is working even when we cannot see his plan. And that's really the thing I want to emphasize, because for us, even living today, there is so often times in our lives when circumstances and things around us, even times when we're seeking God for direction, wanting to know his will, <clears throat> his will we feel alone. And we wonder, God, are you doing anything? Because we can't see it, we question whether he's involved and whether he's aware and whether he's doing anything in our lives. So we're going to be looking at that. We're going to start in the book of Esther. Hopefully, as I say every week, you're reading along with us because there's no way we can tell the whole story. And the story of Esther is an amazing story, amazing story of what somebody can do who is faithful to God. We're going to start and remember and be reminded it's the time of the Persian Empire. We went through the Assyrian Empire, thought they were the greatest thing there ever was and were going to last forever. The Babylonian Empire... And now we're to the Persian Empire. And last week we talked about King Cyrus, the Persian king who had decided to let some of the exiled Jews go back. So there was kind of this first deportation of exiled Jews. And the story we're looking at today is going to take place between this first and the second uh, exportation of the exiles back to their promised land. And when we look at the book of Esther, there's a couple of things that are really quite interesting. One... In the book of Esther, you will not find the name of God mentioned once. Not once. You will not see Jerusalem mentioned once. You will not see the temple mentioned once. You will not hear the law of Moses mentioned once. And some people say, why is it in the Bible? If you read the story and you keep an eye open to where God is doing something supernatural. It's like he's this conductor. He's an invisible conductor of an orchestra. Everything that takes place is in the power and providence of God. It's amazing. And we're going to point some of those things out as I briefly go through the story. As I said, it starts in the Persian Empire. Did you put the map up there yet? Yes. And as you look at the map... It extended all across. There was a huge empire, and for quite a time, that little, where the box is, the little town of Susa, was kind of where king, uh, the kings had established. They were building a whole new fabulous capital. But this is where they were located at the time. And at this time, Jerusalem was nothing but a little village in this magnificent empire of the king. And the king at this time was Xerxes I. And Xerxes I was the king over this powerful, expansive uh, uh, country or empire that he had had. It had been divided into provinces. It was, it was huge. And it was powerful and it was prosperous. And he was full of himself. He declared we're going to have a party for all the people in his <coughs> court, which would be hundreds of people in his court. And he throws a party that's going to last six months. Now, there's a party. Six-month party. Just showing his wealth, 
showing his glory, showing how magnificent he was as king of this empire, this pagan empire. For six months, they partied. And at the end of the six months, he decided to have a big banquet. And the banquet extended beyond his court of hundreds. Now it was for all the people of Susa were invited to this seven-day banquet. Basically, um, it was a drunken party. If you read the story, everybody could drink as much as they want. You couldn't force anybody to drink anything, but it was all free and have at it. And they did. And about the seventh day of the banquet, the king is drunk and he decides it's time to bring in his beautiful queen. Basically, it looks like in the story she was nothing more than arm candy to show off now and again. And he wants to bring the queen in to show her off to all of his banquet attendees. And at that time, whatever the king want, wanted, the king got. It didn't matter who you were, including the queen. So when Queen Vashti was called to come, summoned by the king, so he could parade her around this drunken party that she wasn't attending, she said, no. You don't say no to the king. She says no. And when she says no, of course, the king is furious. And the, his male counsel were all upset because this could be setting a precedent that could go throughout the kingdom that the wife would not obey their husband. We have to do something about this. And they give him this counsel. Take her crown away and banish her that she could never come before you again. And he did. God's working his plan already. He removes the king or the queen in this amazing way. No queen in her right mind would have ever said no to the king. Now there's a problem. The king, as angry as he was, wants to have a queen. Doesn't want to be alone. So he says we have to have a new queen. And they run a beauty pageant. Probably to top all beauty pageants. They sent out a bunch of people and they said, go to every single province and find the most beautiful woman in that entire province and bring them to Susa. And that's what they did. As I said, when the king called, you said yes. And they brought them all to Susa and they went through a, a year-long process. The Bible says for the first six months, they just kept bathing them in myrrh. And then the next six months... It was spices and what other, whatever other beautification processes they went through in that day. And then after a year's time, each one would be called to the king. And out of all those beautiful virgins, he would pick one to be the queen. Well, guess who he picks? Out of all those beautiful women, those beautiful virgins, he picks the one who had become the favorite of the eunuch that was overseeing them. Her name was Esther. God is working his plan. Because Esther, unbeknownst to the king or anyone else, was a Jew. She had been raised by her cousin, Mordecai, when her parents had died. So God is placing a Jew in the royal family as queen over the Persian Empire. Her Jewish identity was kept secret because Mordecai told her to keep it a secret. And she was submitted to Mordecai. And she was also very submitted to the king. Now, 
Mordecai, it's interesting, happened to be sitting at the king's gate, which would seem to indicate that he was an official of the king in some respect. But in sitting at the king's gate, it was a divine spot. God was working his plan. Because Mordecai is sitting at the gate and he hears a plot to kill the king. And he gives this information and it eventually gets to Esther and eventually gets to the king. And they investigate and this plot is uncovered and the king's life is spared. And Mordecai is the one who saved the king. God is working. As they did in those days, the events that took place in Mordecai discovering and uncovering this plot was written down in what they called the records or the chronicles. So their history, all of those things that the king wanted written down would be written down by scribes. And this would play an amazingly important part of God's story, the simple fact that it was written down in the chronicles that Mordecai had uncovered this plot. Once again, God was working his plan behind the scenes. No one would notice, at least not at that time. And the king had a right-hand man named Haman. Now, if the king was full of himself, Haman was really full of himself. And he was one of those guys, as you read the story, you know, you ever seen that one who always kisses up to the boss? He was chief amongst the boss kissers. He would do whatever it took. And he would get so filled with himself whenever the king would give him new responsibilities or honor him in such a way. Haman was put in this position. And Haman had had the command given that anybody, anywhere Haman goes, if he walks past you, you have to bow down to Haman. And everybody did, the way it sounds, except this one guy named Mordecai. At the gate, it drove Haman crazy that Mordecai would not bow before him. And his pride and his hatred just grew towards Mordecai. He makes a plot to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill this guy. So what he does, he deceives the king. He tells him about this person who is violating his edict and all this stuff. And, and to make a longer story short, he, he convinces the king to, to make an edict. And when the king makes an edict, it cannot be changed. Ever. And the edict that he made, Haman, that Haman got the king to make, was that this man who would not bow before him, he didn't give the king his name, and not only this man, but the entire nation of his people would be exterminated, killed. In other words, he got an edict from the most powerful king on the planet that all the Jews will die. And then he went and they drew a lot. They called a pur, P-U-R. They drew a lot and that was to pick the day. So there was going to be this day coming in just a few months when all the Jews were to be slaughtered. And you know what? They couldn't even defend themselves. They were all to be slaughtered. But God still was working his plan. Mordecai hears about the plot. He sends word to Esther. And here's where the story gets a little dicey for Esther. She's the queen. She remembers how she became queen. The other queen 
just said, no, I'm not going to parade around at your drunken party, and he removed her. Mordecai says, you need to intervene for us. You need to go to the king. There's a huge problem with that. Unless the king invites you to come into his presence, anybody who comes into his presence is killed. So if she walked into that chamber of the king, uninvited, even though she was the queen, she would die. And Mordecai says those famous words in Esther chapter 4, verse 14. He says to her, And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? God's not mentioned, but his plan is in place and he's working his plan. And Esther's response is amazing. She just simply says, If I perish... I perish. And then she says, get all the people to pray and fast for three days before I go in to see the king because my life is on the line. The whole nation went into prayer and fasting, all the Jewish people, and she went in to see the king. And the king held his scepter in his hand, and if he took his scepter and he pointed it at you and extended it towards you, you could be received. And Esther was received by the king. She wasn't killed. God was working his plan. The king says to Esther, My queen, ask of me whatever you wish. I will give you anything you want up to one half of my kingdom. Boy, that's what I call a reception. And you know what she asked for? Would my lord and Haman come to a banquet that I prepared for you? Wow, that's pretty cool. Haman's really excited. How special am I? So they go to this banquet. Now, Haman, and at this banquet, they get invited. The king says, okay, we're here. What would you like? Expecting her request now. And she says, I just would like you to come to another banquet tomorrow. Just you and Haman. Of course, says the king. And Haman goes home and he is pumped And he is furious all at the same time. He's excited that he's got invited to this exclusive banquet, but he leaves that banquet and he goes walking past the king's gate and there's that jerk Mordecai who won't even bow to me. I'm getting invited to a private banquet, just me and the king, and this Mordecai won't bow to me. So he goes home and he complains to his wife. Anybody here do that? Yeah. And his wife didn't encourage him. Wife and some friend says, build a pole and let's hang him. They put a pole up, now listen to this, 50 cubits, somewhere between 75 and 90 feet tall. This guy's full of himself, and he is going to make an example of Mordecai. So they go to the banquet. They go to the banquet, and have the banquet, and the king asks, what would you like? And Esther Mordecai, I'm sure they're having a. Pl- I'm sure he's having a great time. I'm the greatest guy ever. Well, actually, I need to back up a step. The king couldn't sleep that night before the banquet, so he called the scribe and said, "Read to me the chronicles." And the scribe stands there and reads to the king the chronicles. And guess what part he reads? 
in all the chronicles of the Persian Empire, he reads, And there was a man named Mordecai who uncovered a plot to kill the king. And the king goes, Wait a minute. We never honored that man. So he calls in. He says, Who's out in the outer chamber? And the servant says, Haman, your right-hand man, probably puckered up. And he says, Bring him in here. And he says, Haman, what should I do for a man that I need to honor, deserves to be honored, but I have not honored him yet? Well, Haman, you can just see him. Yeah, that's me, man. All right. He says, get a royal robe that the king has worn and put it on him. And get a mighty stallion, a mighty horse that the king has ridden and put him on him. And lead him through the city, declaring this great honor upon this man. And the king says, great idea, Haman. I want you to go get Mordecai and give him that robe and give him that horse and parade him through the city. Oh, was Haman angry. No wonder he built that pole so tall. So they come to that banquet. Haman's planning to put Mordecai on a 75-foot tall pole, expecting the king to show more favor to him and the king asked Esther, what can I do for you this time? What, what would you like? And Esther tells the king about this evil man who wants to kill Mordecai and all the Jewish people. And in, who is this man? And it says it's this evil Haman. And the king is furious. And he runs up out of the room. And Haman is scared to death and he's He's quaking before the queen and she's sitting on her couch thing that the queen would sit on at this banquet. And when the king returns, Haman's over there over top of her like he's assaulting the queen. And the king gets really angry and says, take him and take him to that pole that he built for Mordecai and impale him upon that pole. That was the end of Haman. God's plan was working the whole time. Then there was the problem of that edict that couldn't be changed. And the king comes up with this idea and he says, I want to write another edict. And this edict says, on that day of Pur that was drawn, that day that was chosen for them to be executed across the empire, on that day the Jews may come together and defend themselves. And to make the story short, that's exactly what happened. And they destroyed their enemies. All who would try to come against the Jewish people were slaughtered. And the Jews were free. And they declared that day a holiday called Purim. And the Jewish people celebrate that holiday yet today. Purim. The first holiday, Passover, was the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. And Purim, from that Pur, the drawing of a lot, is the holiday of the deliverance of God's chosen people from the Persian Empire. His name is not mentioned, but his plan is being worked everywhere. Man had a plan in this whole thing. Men were plotting and planning. All of these things, all these events, even the king like he's in control. Haman thinking he's something and he's going to control things. And the whole time, God is working his plan. And in this, he gives us a glimpse of a couple of things I just want to mention. First, he gives us a picture, a type or a shadow 
of the Messiah. And he does it through a woman. Now, if that bothers your theology, you're just going to have to get over it. Esther is a picture of the Messiah in the Scriptures. She was the deliverer used by God to deliver his people from extinction, from this edict that came from the king. There's a couple of things that I just want to touch on. The precursor that she was to the Messiah. Remember who she was. She was chosen for her beauty. That's how she was chosen out of all of those virgins from all the provinces of of Persia. She was chosen because of her beauty. There's a scripture in Psalms 27 that says, I ask only one thing from the Lord, and this is what I want. Let me live in the Lord's house all the days of my life. Let me see the Lord's beauty and look with my eyes at his temple. The Lord... And Esther both lived in submission to the authorities over them. We see in John chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus is speaking. He says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his works through me. Jesus lived his life totally submitted to the authority in his life, which was the Father. Esther lived in, a, in submission to the authority in her life. Mordecai, in whose home she was raised, and even to a pagan king whose queen she became. She also exhibited it with that famous, famous line, for such a time as this. God's perfect timing. She was put in the right place. In verse 14 that I read, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And in Galatians 4, 4, In reference to Jesus, it says, but when the time came, the right time, just the right time. And we've talked in the past weeks that Jesus went willingly, knowingly, exactly what he was doing. When it wasn't time for his death, he said, it's not my time, and they went away. And this time he went, because when the right time came, God sent his son, who was born of a woman and lived under the law. Esther typified a shadow of the Messiah. And both of them exposed evil and were willing to die for it should it come to that. When she went into the king's chamber uninvited, she had to be prepared in her heart to die. And her words were simply, if I perish, I perish. Her faith and trust was in God. The second takeaway that I just want to hit on in closing is how the great upper story of God is confirmed again and again and again. And that great upper story is simply this, that God is going to all kinds of lengths to bring his people back to himself, to redeem them and reconcile them, and he will do whatever it takes. He watches over us no matter what. We look at this over and over. We see in the story that we went through God's faithfulness in spite of idolatry, sin, All the bad choices that his people made, over and over he stood by him. Nothing is going to stop him from redemption, the plan that he has in place. God is still working even when we cannot see him working. Remember when Joseph was in a prison? God was working. Remember when Moses was put in the basket in the reeds because they were all to be killed, all the babies? God was still working. He's going to raise up Gideon as a deliverer and he finds him hiding Grinding in the wheat mill. 
hiding. God was working. Samson, his eyes are, he's blinded. God was still working. David is running from Saul for months and months and months. God was still working. The Babylonian captivity, God was working. And now we see it again in the Persian captivity. God is still working. Even when you can't see it, he's working his plan. Just think, this was probably the darkest hour up to this point in the history of the Jewish nation, God's chosen people. They were facing extinction. There was a potential death sentence on every single one of them. But God's plan was at work. How do we apply a story like this to us today? And that's really one of the most important things we always walk away with. And I hope it's this same thing, that we realize God is working a plan. And sometimes when we're in the midst of our lower story in his plan, we absolutely can't see what he's doing. And we question what he's doing. We question, where are you? We question all these things. You know, we need to understand and have faith. We might face financial foreclosure. We might face divorce. We might face face the death of a loved one. We could face unemployment. We could face all kinds of different financial crises. We can face cancer. We can face frustrations and trials and tests every day. God is still working. It doesn't have to make sense to us. Our faith, as Esther said, if I perish, I perish. As a Christian, we need to walk by that kind of faith. Faith that can be not stupid faith, not blind faith, not ignorant faith, but faith that's founded on the Word of God, the faithfulness of God, and a couple of promises that I struck last week. One, we are children of God, created in His image, loved unconditionally. No matter what happens, that'll never change. And two, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. When we can keep in mind our identity and position in Christ, stand on the word, our faith can remain strong no matter what it is we're going through. We can be confident that God's plan is still working. Let's play together. Father, I I thank you for the, the demonstration of faithfulness we see in the life of this woman named Esther. God, that we can see a type of Redeemer, a type of Christ. God, we can see what what you do in your plan to put people in certain places for those divine appointments, God, and you're still doing the same thing today. We may not save nations, but you may put us in a place of a divine appointment where we can share the love of Christ with someone who doesn't know you. God, we thank you for those times. We thank you that you have promised you will give us the words to speak. And Lord, we thank you And thank you and thank you for the love that you freely give. And I pray, God, that we would be those kinds of conduits where your love could flow into us but would also flow out of us to those around us. That your love would break down the most difficult of walls. God, I pray as we go our separate ways this week that you would go before us by your Spirit and lead us, guide us, direct us. God, we pray for your protection over us. I ask your blessings upon each one. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Greet one another and have a great week.